Hi guys, exciting news that we teased on the Monday podcast. We've got a new one, Going Up, Going Down, brought to you by The Athletic. It's George and I each week towards the end of the week, and it's a few different things. It's a weekend preview, but it's also uh, looking in focus on certain clubs and players. It's the best fixtures ahead of the weekend that we're most excited about, and it's EFL Rewind, delving into the history of the EFL to find the weirdest and wackiest topics. But instead of explaining it all to you multiple times, why don't you just give it a listen? This is the first episode of the Going Up, Going Down podcast for The Athletic, brought to you on this feed with the intention that you listen to it, that you love it, that you let us know your feedback and you head to the Going Up, Going Down podcast feed to subscribe for all future episodes. everyone and welcome to the first ever episode of the Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name is George Ellick and I'm sitting opposite Ali Maxwell, the Billy Sharp to my David McGoldrick. Mm, and we will the be, creative one. <laughs> and we'll be your hosts every Thursday to try and make some sense of the glorious English football league. We'll be previewing the upcoming weekend's key games, dissecting in detail a team or a player every week and also casting a nostalgic look back to some of the strangest stories that only the EFL could throw up. So whether the name Taylor conjures thoughts of Graham, Martin or Lyle, we should have you covered. Yeah, all of our podcasts are completely free. The ad-free versions are available to subscribers of The Athletic. Now, The Athletic is offering all number of podcast options for you, but also at its core, a football writing website and so many other sports and one of the best groups of football writers that exists. You can sign up to The Athletic site and get a 40% discount now by using the promo code EFLPOD. It's all one word, so E-F-L-P-O-D. Check out The Athletic today. That's where the ad-free version will be, uh, but it's also available on all podcast platforms as well. Now, to start each show, given that we're coming to you towards the back end of the week, we think it makes sense to preview some of the biggest games from across the three EFL divisions. Now, what that means for this week, the first episode, is really a focus on the best games in League One and League Two. Just the one championship game this weekend because of FA Cup fourth round action. That is stunning against Swansea but I George wanted to start with what I think is clearly the best game in League One and it's Peterborough hosting Rotherham these are the two top scorers in League One so uh, on the one hand you might be expecting a goal fest we know two strong attacking teams but Rotherham are also top of League One they are enjoying the longest winning streak in that division this season five wins in a row for the Millers and Peterborough, their hosts, only just ended a six-game run without a win uh, with a, a red-card-assisted 4-0 win against Wickham in midweek. So it's a really interesting game. Uh, Rotherham, they're top of the table. They deserve to be there. But we know that League One this season has had one theme, one major theme, which is those who reach the top of the table often don't spend long there. So is a wobble incoming. Uh, they suffered a slow start this season 
a relegation hangover, I think you would say. Uh, often teams who battle right to the end and suffer relegation uh, do struggle to hit the ground running. That was certainly the case with Rotherham. But they stuck by Paul Warren, who's a manager that you and I really like. He's quite a quirky character. His post-match interviews are definitely outside of, of the normal mould. But he's a serious manager as well. And he's getting a tune out of this Rotherham side since the start of October 35 points from 17 games, which is three more than the next best in the division in Pompey, eight more than the third best of Burton. So you can see how they've risen to the top of this division. They've got the attack sorted, uh, best record in League One for expected goals for, and the third best defensive numbers. So you can kind of see that this is built on a solid foundation. You mentioned that we're fans of, of Paul Warren and you know, it's something that people may not know about him is, is the, the human aspect of his managerial style. How much do you think that impacts it? I mean, for people who don't know, he, he encourages his players to share stories about their struggles with their family, their personal struggles as well, and even kind of quirky sides of his managerial uh, tactics. He changed the home and away dugout earlier this season at the New York Stadium in order to try and improve the home performances. So do you think part of the reason why he's able to get such a good tune out of this Rotherham side is because of those different methods he looks to when things aren't going so well I think possibly it's hard to know without being within a club but he certainly takes a really different approach uh, to the psychological side and the motivational side of the game not in any way old school militaristic but but quite the opposite I've no doubt that he's got authority this wouldn't work otherwise but his his slightly more modern approach I suppose to uh, team bonding team building and trying to build a, a strong psychological bond between players is something that we saw when they were struggling last season in the championship the fact that they were underdogs all the time was, was quite an easy motivational win I suppose for one and then the test is all of a sudden you're now favorites for promotion or certainly among them and you have to go about it a different way uh, as for the style of play, I think there are a number of teams who, when you're struggling in the championship or any division, your 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 nice style, your philosophies can often get uh, changed a little bit by the, the grind, the week-to-week -week desperation for points. And, and now we're seeing a worn team in the mould that he wants. A former fitness coach, they are always among the, the most intense teams in the division. If you look at PPDA, which is the metric for pressing essentially uh, they're second in the league for that and they play a 4-4-2 which is exciting fast and, and direct with this quite intense press uh, without the ball uh, they're a team that has a lot of varied threats so they haven't necessarily got one obvious star that you can pick out but partnerships all over the pitch uh, up top recently Michael Smith who's a tall target man type has been bringing out the best out of Kyle Vassell who hadn't scored for Rotherham, uh, mostly thanks to injuries, but now has five in his last five in all competitions. But the, I guess the big name at the moment uh, is Ogbené. Chidozi Ogbené, really speedy winger. He came over from Linfield to Brentford, didn't break through there. He finds himself at Rotherham and he's really growing into himself absolutely electric pace that defences are finding really difficult and they've brought in someone we loved at Scunthorpe, Hakeem Adelican, who couldn't break in the team having got the move to Bristol City but is also a real threat from out wide. So real varied wide threat, uh, really solid at the back. They've got the best aerial dual percentage in the league so they're a strong team as well as a good attacking side. Uh, but they're up against this posh team 
and they're an interesting side as well, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, coming on to, to the opponents, um, I wrote an article for The Athletic back in October, which you can still find, which the title was How Three Misfits Are Firing Peterborough's Promotion Challenger 25 Goals Between Them in 11 Games. That was Marcus Madison, Ivan Tony, and Moisa. Fair to say, since I wrote that, things uh, have changed somewhat. They won midweek against Wickham, uh, thrashing them 4-0, Wickham down to 10 men early on in that game. And that ended a run of just two points in six games. So what do you think caused that that rut, that that loss of form? And do you think after Tuesday's game, you know, we're going to see a different side coming up against the, the table toppers here? Well, I think Tuesday's game, you shouldn't get carried away with that 4-0 win against Wickham. A really early and incredibly harsh red card uh, for the Wickham centre-back. And Peterborough, fair, they made the most of that. They scored four really good goals. And Ivan Tony, who is really the star man, uh, showed all of his best attributes. Uh, maybe no surprise during the January transfer window that he is showing more to his game maybe than we've seen before. Not just goals, although he is three goals clear at the top of the goal scoring charts, but also this strength uh, in terms of hold-up play and some really nice assists in midweek as well. I think we sort of knew that the incredible stats those three were putting up at the start of the season were unlikely to continue to Except that. for me, saying they were going to score 100 <laughs> if I combined. So. Unlikely to continue to that extent, partly because the midfield's always been a bit of a sticking point this season for Peterborough. It never felt, even with those three doing the business in the final third, that they had found the right balance. And I think you can see that that was proven by the fact they've brought in three midfielders already in January in Jack Taylor, Reese Brown and Sammy Smodix as more of a number 10 type. And they've all gone straight into the team. So they mixed it up in midweek, the 4-4-2 the diamond formation that had really become a bit of a point of contention with the fans really saying that it was clear it wasn't suiting the team. That was changed to a 3-4-1-2, the sort of formation we see a lot of at League One and League Two level, especially three centre-backs with a bit more solidity, the, wide, the width being provided just by the wing-backs. And then uh, those new guys, Taylor, uh, more of a worker, Reese Brown, more of a creator, and Smodix, the goal threat at the tip of the diamond. Now, Issa's out the side at the moment. Not quite sure if he's injured or whether he's just having a bit of a rest. His form dipped. Marcus Madison's not in the team at the moment either, as transfer speculation continues to build on him so it's an interesting time as always for posh they're always so active in the transfer market but i actually think that with the win in midweek the change of shape which I, i'm sure they'll continue with and i think suits them well against this rotherham side with its threats it's easy to forget that posh because they've been on a bad run have had a good start to the season generally they've won eight in 13 at home and I don't see Rotherham making it six wins out of six here. I'm going to predict a draw, an entertaining game. I think as League One football matches go, this will be right up there. Uh, but I do fancy Rotherham to end the winning run. So really looking forward to this one. Uh, you're looking at League Two for your fixture of the weekend. Yeah, probably a less entertaining game, I'd have thought. It's, it's Stevenage against Plymouth. Uh, Stevenage strugglers, Plymouth, the form team in League Two. And l looking at this in a bit more detail, I think it's important just to tell the story for those who don't know it, of Graham Wesley. Graham Wesley's in his fourth spell in charge of Stevenage, having been appointed about six weeks ago. Uh, he's a bit of a legend at the club. He won back-to-back -back promotions in his second stint there, out of the National League, straight up into League One, which nobody really saw coming whatsoever. He was replaced after his third spell at the club by a certain Teddy Sheringham. Fair to say that didn't end too well. But his general way that he approaches the game, his management style is 
quite bizarre and some of the stuff that he's done in the press um, has been interesting to say the least. He once beat Newcastle in the FA Cup and he said that his team talk and the reason why they won was because he told his Stevenage team to go out and win the match 5-0 because we established if we did just 20% of what it would take to win 5-0 then we'd still win. (laughs) If only all football was that easy. He also came uh, became manager of Peterborough and told the fans on his appointment that he would get his team to play 600 or more passes per game and have 25 or more shots. To put that into context, uh, Manchester City under Pep Guardiola averaged about 18 shots per game. So <laughs> fair to say that didn't go to plan either. And he was sacked seven months later with the team in 14th. He was also sacked as Newport County manager back in March 2017 with the club 11 points adrift at the bottom of the table. Mike Flynn came in and kept them up miraculously and Wesley said afterwards that it was his strategy that was the cause for that success. It it feels a bit like, George, a fourth spell in charge of Stevenage, but there have been times where he's left, if, if we look at it in the context of a relationship, there were times where I think he thought he was probably better than Stevenage and moved upwards. But now coming back to Stevenage, having really been out of work since that Newport gig, it kind of feels like they're the ones who, you know, he's gone back with his tail between his legs almost. Although that that's not really a character trait of Wesley's. I think it's fair to say that, that Graham Wesley wouldn't have got another job in League Two except for the Stevenage job. And he hasn't changed, let's say that. You look at the transfers they've made. I mean, bringing in Graham Wesley a couple of weeks before the transfer window was always going to be interesting. But the players that he signed, he signed Joe Leasley, who has spent this season on loan at Stockport from Harrogate Town, making the step up to League Two. He signed Jake Cassidy, who he signed from Maidenhead United after spells at Maidstone, Geisley and Hartlepool. He signed Diagouli Darbo, who's been unattached since leaving a third division club in France in May. And Alex Revel, Alex Revel, who we all remember from, from Rotherham, who'd retired. <laughs> so those are the four signings he's made. Three of them started uh, and made their debuts on the weekend, the last weekend, and they beat a decent Cambridge team 4-0 away from home. This is Graham Wesley being Graham Wesley. And, and his career, for all that we mock him, the successes have come in these extraordinary runs of form. We've seen it at Stevenage a few times, especially during that, that second spell where they would go 13, 14 games, winning 11 or 12 of them. So the fact that he's gone and beaten a Cambridge side 4-0 with three players who he signed from complete obscurity. It, it makes this... It's a giving really, you good vibes. Well, it just makes this a really interesting clash because they're playing against a side who will come into it in a second mm. in Plymouth who are, are absolutely firing in all cylinders. But if you're Ryan Lowe, you're going to look at this as a, as a massive banana skin. Yeah, I, I just spoke about Rotherham and how five wins in a row have taken them to the top of League One. How if you ignore that slow start then they've pretty much been the best team in League One over the last few months. The same kind of applies for Plymouth, right? A relegation hangover of sorts, but since then, pretty spectacular. Yeah, they're top of the form table in the last six games with 15 points from those. Uh, Top of the, for 10 games as well with 24 points, 12 games, 27 points. You can see that since uh, a sticky start, which is maybe to be expected given the relegation and given Ryan Lowe's arrival at the club in the summer, uh, that that probably explains it. But I think, the crucial thing here is that this success starts with Ryan Lowe. Uh, he's a manager who was who took over Bury before their relegation from League One, managed to take them up last season for their final season as, you know, as the club that they were then. Despite all the off-field problems, despite the players not being uh, being paid on time, he managed to get them playing an attacking brand of football and they were promoted as one of the best teams we've seen in League Two in recent times. He relied on individual individuals for that goal output, output last season. Danny Mayer for assists, Nicky Maynard for goals. They were the two main men for Berry. whereas this season we're seeing that spread across the team in a much more balanced fashion. 
Anthony Sarsovic, a midfielder, is their top scorer with six goals, barring Moore and Joel Grant, generally the strikers, and, and they've only got four and three between them. So if there is a criticism about this Argyle team, it's maybe that they lacked a striker. They brought in Ryan Hardy, someone who's never been prolific in England, you have to say, but he's come in from Blackpool and has only made paid 40 minutes off the bench so far in two games and scored in both of them. So he could be the answer there. They're one of the many teams who play a back three in League Two and maybe the football isn't quite as exciting for that reason at Plymouth as it was at Berry last season for Lowe, but they are proving just as effective. It'd be no surprise to see Mayer catch fire soon. He's normally too good at, uh, in League Two. Just the one goal and four assists for him so far this season. But they are a team at the moment who are looking to profit on maybe a couple of the teams around them slipping up. They've been the best team in the league over the last... Uh, few months and in terms of a prediction for this one it's hard it's hard to bet against Plymouth you have to say because of their form but at the same time <laughs> because of Stevenage's result on Saturday and because of what we know about Graham Wesley if he has somehow managed to galvanise the side into something half decent then this could be a tricky one so I'm going to say a 1-0 win for the for the away team Argyle I feel like Wesley's really got inside your head uh, in, in recent weeks uh, also there is FA Cup action we're not going to go into detail but in terms of EFL interest in the FA Cup you've got Oxford travelling to Newcastle Shrewsbury hosting Liverpool Brentford have got Leicester coming to Griffin Park as well there are some exciting fixtures as well and, and, and hopefully and I'm sure we'll get some some cup sets, as they say, involving EFL teams. So now we come to the hot take debate. This section of the show is where Ali and I will go on record with our current EFL hot take an opinion that goes against the grain and, in many cases, the evidence currently before us. We've had some fun with this in the past on social media, and for a while last season, I wouldn't have been welcome to the Stadium of Light. But to get us up and running, Ali has a hot take, so hot that if we look directly at it, we may as well go blind. Yeah, thanks, George. I think that getting promoted from the Championship to the Premier League is bad. I think it's a bad thing. <laughs> uh, all right, so you think that the whole point of football and the reason why we go to games and the epitome of being an EFL fan is a bad thing. It's interesting you say the reason why we go to games because I think you're thinking of something else but it is one of my points. Uh, there's a few different aspects to this. Bear in mind that we, we've been covering these leagues for quite a while so we've seen let's say since we've started doing podcasts about the EFL, probably 12 teams go up to the Premier League from the Championship. Uh, quite a few of those teams have fans that we know, that we know quite well and who we've spoken to about what it is to go up to the Premier League and the experience when they get there. So I suppose from a pure fan sentiment point of view, there's something that I'm, that I'm missing here. But I think there's a few things to go through here. The actual raison d'etre of sport and football and why I love the EFL is competition and there's plenty of arguments to be had about whether the championship is a level playing field there's absolutely no argument when it comes to the Premier League if you go up to the Premier League from the championship generally you have just enjoyed one of the greatest seasons that you could possibly have, have ever experienced with wins galore you go up to the Premier League you've got this Big six, you're told. It's a big six. Maybe now with Leicester, it's a big seven. Let's say you've got 12 out of 38 games. That's a third of your matches that you go into. And what you really would love is a nil-nil. Or maybe 
maybe sitting on the edge of your own box with six at the back and maybe scoring from a set piece, maybe taking three points, but realistically, not really. Now, what that does mean is then you've got 26 games, two thirds of your games, which are unbelievably stressful because they mean so much. They're against teams who are in a similar boat than you. The relegation battle normally takes up about 10 teams for the majority of the season. And as an experience as a fan goes, that strikes me as being exceptionally stressful. I think one of the things people might say is, oh no, but you really want your club to be playing against the best players and you see them in the flesh. I don't think that really stands up anymore. I think that that whole, you know, the top players being held up as these amazing, unattainable things. I think that's been diluted. The modern age where we, we know all their foibles, we follow them on, on Instagram and we know that they're actually quite boring. And we see them play all the time. Every game in the Premier League you can see extended highlights of. So the amazing moments, they become fairly normal. Crucially, I think the match-going experience is not as good. Now, this doesn't apply for everyone, but especially for away fans... I think there's a lack of variety in terms of the the stadia that you're going to. I think that VAR has created a bewildering fan experience. We're never going to talk about VAR on anything we do. Only in this scenario. I think it's created a bewildering fan experience. I spoke to a few friends who are in the Premier League having been in the Championship. One of them didn't celebrate a goal against Liverpool because wasn't sure whether VAR would give it or not. Uh, it, it's it's remarkable. Uh, but there's also kind of, I suppose this is a sentimental thing I've got as well. Well, go on. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I'm just thinking about this. If I was a Leeds fan listening to this, or if I was a Brentford fan thinking to this, or, or even like a Preston fan listening to this, who's never been able to watch their team in the Premier League. And you look at, you mentioned how you're going to have this amazing season. And that is true. You speak to Sheffield United fans about last season. You speak to uh, Norwich fans about last season. They had you know, 46 games of, of unbelievable drama which with success at the end. We're probably going to be welcome, welcoming Norwich back to the EFL next season. It looks like. If not, they're going to have an amazing few months coming up. But they will always have that day where they beat Man City. You look at Sheffield United, who have managed to make the step up and are now going from strength to strength and could be following their team around Europe next season. Surely the whole premise of football fandom is risk and reward. And, you know, if you do get relegated again, you're back in the league... At least you'll always have that season. Yeah, you've picked a, and you had to pick the Sheffield United example. You can't ignore that. Clearly, they are uh, massively flying in the face of everything I say. Although I will also point out that they've been pretty bewildered by VAR. They've not enjoyed that. They've also not always enjoyed the media coverage. And I think this is quite an interesting one. It's clear that when you play in the championship, you are less visible. The media are not covering you to the same extent. There are some excellent podcasts, but you know, you're know you not in the public eye. In the Premier League, you're more visible. But I think as a fan, that comes with higher expectation for how people are going to cover your team. And I feel like there's a lot of fans who feel it's not matched by the coverage that you get. I think often it's felt that teams are being paid off at the end of major highlights shows with, with a straightforward line instead of any real analysis. And that can be quite hurtful because you love your team and you love what they're doing. The last thing I'll say is you're absolutely right. Norwich's season was incredible. Aston Villa's second half of last season, unbelievable. What saddens me slightly as well is that you see that the relationships between fans and the players and managers with whom they've experienced the highest joy and it can get toxic so quickly it can become strained and fraught really swiftly in a way that that really upsets me uh, I, I just look at Daniel Farker who's who's being well backed by his board and he's in a good situation but 
it's almost unbelievable for us to see Norwich fans questioning Daniel Farker and forgetting last season. For Villa fans to say, Smith's not good enough for this level. That, that saddens me. It happens with players as well. I just think it's not talked about enough that the move to the Premier League can actually not be very enjoyable. That was this week's hot take. Want to hear from you Leeds fans, you Villa fans, you Norwich fans who have maybe experienced what Ali's talking about firsthand. So get in touch and let us know what you think. Yeah, next we're going to head through some EFL headlines. The feature is called Not the Back Page. And given that we're coming to you towards the back end of the week, there might have been some news stories that you've missed this week. George, I want to know from you, what's big news and why? We were quite frustrated last week when uh, we realised we weren't going to be able to cover the Owen Doyle story on Not the Back Page because it was going to be too late but it turns out we can because... What's the Owen Doyle story? Swindon Town are top of the league in League Two and they have the two top goal scorers in the league or I should say they had the two top goal scorers in the league. Owen Doyle on 23, Jerry Yates on 13. Doyle was recalled by promotion rivals Bradford. Uh, Owen Doyle had come out in the press about three weeks ago and said that he was not interested in returning to Bradford. The style of pay didn't suit him and he wanted to stay at Swindon. Gary Bowyer, Bradford's manager, completely ignored that and has recalled him and has played him ever since and he's yet to find the back of the net. No matter though, as uh, Swindon manager Richie Wedden said, we have the second best goal scorer in the league anyway. We'll just move him into Doyle's role. Yates scored immediately. Jerry Yates on loan from Rotherham uh, and they were convinced they were going to keep him. And yesterday, Rotherham have recalled Jerry Yates from his loan at Swindon. Some talk in the local press around Swindon and Rotherham saying that it's due to an injury and that he may be loaned back out somewhere, but that's unlikely to be Swindon Town. So Swindon left without their two talisman, without their two goal scorers, still top of the league. They've moved quickly to sign Hallam Hope from Carlisle on an 18-month deal. He scored 14 goals last season, but just two so far in the league this campaign. Fair to say it's not been the best January so far if you're a Swindon Town the interesting question out of this, which we will, I'm sure, touch on in future weeks is, is Swindon's attacking system, which saw them boast the two top goal scorers in the division, good enough, reliable enough that any striker can slot in and score goals? Or were Doyle and Yates truly top level for the level? And how will Hallam Hope get on? We've got some really good news as well in the EFL. Hull City centre-back Angus McDonald is back in training after being given the all-clear from bowel cancer. Uh, he was diagnosed with the disease in August and told he might not be able to play football again. But after two operations and months of treatment, he's returned to first-team duties with Hull. It's absolutely fantastic news. Cannot wait for his return to the pitch. And then some very modern day football news <laughs> is that Tom Pope of Port Vale has been banned for a match by the FA for essentially being naughty on Twitter. Not ideal for your star striker to miss a game for any reason, let alone because he's just let his mouth run a little bit on social media. More ridiculously, it's the second time this season that's happened. So he's already missed two league games Put the now. phone away, Tom. Put, Put the, the phone, phone away. 34-year-old, you'd think he might know better. He's also got another potential charge with a very similar reason behind it hanging over his head. So while there's humour, I suppose, in how unusual this is, for the club, it's not particularly funny and Tom Pope really needs to learn how to behave. I think we all agree there. <laughs> Thank you. 
now we have a feature called In Focus, where Ali and I will take it in turns every week to pick out an EFL club or an EFL player that we want to delve right into. It might be looking at them at the moment, it might be looking at them tactically, personality, whatever. We're going to be looking to deep dive into whatever takes our fancy in the EFL. Yeah, so this week I have chosen a club. I've chosen Swansea City to look at a little bit more in depth. And I suppose the first thing to say is it's not because they are absolutely smashing it. It's not because they are the go-to team when you think about the best team in the EFL doing the best things. But I do think there's something interesting in terms of the way they've approached their relegation from the Premier League. They were there for seven seasons, so they were kind of used to being in the Premier League. But remember when they were relegated, it was under a bit of a cloud. There was a lot of talk of moving away from the Swansea way and, and, and there was some really bad feeling when they were relegated. I'm not going to discuss how the club was run in the years leading up to its relegation, but just since being back in the EFL, 18 months or so. And I'm still not sure how good or bad it is. I just think the board have done things a little bit differently. And of course, as with everything in football, we probably will judge this in hindsight in a few seasons. But for critics, it's unambitious. I think there's a chance it could be something of a blueprint. So here's what I've seen from them. The reason I think they're doing things a little bit differently. The way they've handled the transition, well, firstly, a return to getting back to the Swansea way, I think, has been a priority. And you can see it in the managers that they've hired. Firstly, it was Graham Potter from Ostersunds in Sweden. Everyone had heard about Potter at this stage in the footballing world. He'd been getting rave reviews in Sweden for, for doing things a bit differently. But only Swansea thought to themselves, hold on. He's done an absolutely transformational job at a provincial club with a, a really unfancied group of players. I think that means he's probably a decent manager. Let's give him a go. And, and of course, he was. He's remembered really fondly by Swansea fans. He only lasted a season there before being poached by Brighton. And there's something unusual about this. They've just been relegated from the Premier League. They finished mid-table in the end in the Championship, but it felt like a good season. He got them back playing the Swansea way, really high possession stats, an onus on technical ability. But also, crucially, he started to bring through some of the younger players that weren't getting a chance at the Premier League or at Premier League level. Some of them youth academy products like Joe Rodon, the centre-back now of Wales, Connor Roberts as well, but also guys who they'd signed as young players but hadn't got a chance. Daniel James, of course, uh, and also Matt Grimes, who's now the captain, a key player. And, of course, Potter gets poached because he is being viewed as doing a really, really good job. And you wonder whether they'll go left field for the next appointment. Of course, they do. Steve Cooper is now the manager. He had never managed at senior level before. But what's his area of expertise? Young players, a great knowledge of youth football and the development of young talent. And you can start to see the sort of way that they're going about things. Now, the jury's still out on, on Cooper. It's interesting that I think the general feeling is tactics and even style of play is not quite as good as under Potter, but potentially even a, a better chance of promotion. They're only one point outside the playoffs right now. So he'll be judged, I suppose, at the end of the season. But you're also starting to see that the way that they want to rebuild this club. Fair to say as well. I mean, you mentioned the, the managerial changes are, are slightly against the grain that we normally see from teams, especially those coming down from the Premier League. You look at the teams that have come down from the Premier League as well and the way that they go about stuff in the transfer market. Swansea, 
definitely not looking like a you know they're not following the blueprint that we normally see no they're not or certainly they they didn't when they first came down they came down with West Brom and with Stoke Stoke went extreme in one direction spending as much money as they could from the parachute payments on players that they hoped would get them straight back up West Brom sort of in the middle they sold some talent but they also kept hold of Jay Rodriguez uh, they, they had Dwight Gale of course as well uh, and then Swansea who got rid of 11 players who were part of that relegation squad uh, 45 million pounds brought in and only 6 million quid spent now it's quite hit and miss looking back Bursant Salina stands out a 3 million pound signing who's a, a key part of their team and someone we could see playing at a higher level the key I think was in not signing loads of players there's often a well we've got to buy players who know what it is to get promoted from the championship I think there's an over uh, exaggeration on the importance of that sometimes uh, the key was the fresh perspective allowed Potter to do what he does best, develop those young players that I talked about earlier, implement this attractive style of play. They then made another £35 million pounds or so in the summer, selling Daniel James, selling Ollie McBurney. I mean, James off the back of really one good season where before he hadn't shown anything like that sort of level of ability. And again, they're, they're not spending a lot of money on permanent transfers. We know that they hired a group called Market Insights to help with their recruitment. That shows me they're thinking outside the box a little bit. The onus there on, on data recruitment, on finding, I suppose, gems from outside of the normal pools that we see championship clubs buying players from. For the fans, you can absolutely see why this can be seen as quite un unambitious. With parachute payments, with the money they've brought in, there must be funds available to spend on players. But they're almost saying, we don't want to spend money for the sake of it. We want to rebuild the club with the mid to long term stability in mind. And I think if I'm right, they'll be in quite a strong position over the next few years. Even with parachute payments running out at the end of next season, it strikes me that they've looked after the club well enough and being able to maintain a side that produces decent results on the pitch while developing young players and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future I think it'll be a busy summer of recruitment either way because currently they're leaning heavily on loan players uh, they're trying to create this link with Chelsea that's been written about in the athletic by Liam Toomey and Simon Johnson Steve Cooper was the England under 17 manager who won the World Cup and the three January loan signings Gwehi, Brewster, Gallagher all players from the Premier League, from Liverpool and Chelsea, who played under him in winning that title a few years ago. So I'm just interested. I'm just interested. I, I'm, I'm looking at this mid to long term and thinking it's quite a, an interesting strategy and one that I buy into. I think it's good. The funny thing being, they could well achieve promotion this year, in which case it'd be fascinating to see how they act if they do. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds from what you're saying, like they're, they're kind of like a Brentford side or Brentford team kind of three years ago where they're starting to create this this recruitment network and they're starting to not spend the money they have but make sure that the, the investment that they do make is is something that they can sell on in the future so where do you see them let's say in in three years time do you think they'll, they'll be a side who've, who've made the step up to the Premier League or do you think they'll still be building in the in the championship I think so I think look in the short term it is possible that these loanees, especially Brewster and Gallagher, who played well on their on, in their first game on the weekend, it's possible that these guys take them up one level and that next level would be playoff side. Now, once you're in the playoffs, who knows? They could be in the Premier League this summer. I suspect that is, at this stage, not likely. And it'll be a big summer of recruitment because there's still a bit of rebuilding of this squad to do. They could... 
they could do more to rebuild this in the new image of Swansea. And it'd be interesting to see how they go about it, how much money they spend and where they're recruiting players from. But I do think that going forward, I can't see it all coming crashing down. And that does happen sometimes with teams who are relegated from the Premier League, who really gamble to try and go back up swiftly with the parachute payment money and don't make it then you get a moment where you have to change everything really quickly in order to to basically understand your new realities financially. We're seeing that this season with Middlesbrough especially. They've really had to change the whole structure of the club uh, and it could be a few years before they sort of hit, before they, I guess, understand what it is to, to reach the top end of this division. Whereas I kind of think Swansea are prepping themselves for a promotion but in one or two years rather than immediately. And I'm interested to see what happens. Next up is going to be a weekly look at a specific set of fans, really asking them how things are. I suppose taking the temperature of a fan base. Now this week, George, it's Sunderland fans that we've been speaking to because not only have they had a, a, something of a roller coaster few years, but actually even if you zoom in, a pretty busy month or so as well. Yeah, this is the parky out edition uh, of this feature. Uh, they'd gone nine games without a win in all competitions up until the 29th of December. Uh, this was following the sacking of Jack Ross and they'd replaced him with Phil Parkinson. They'd only beaten Tranmere and End, two of the division's strugglers, and they didn't even have a shot on target until the 115th minute, so into extra time when they played Gillingham in the Cup. So it was all pretty desperate and... Uh, and I had a look at the Parky Out hashtag on Twitter, and so I'm, I'm very sorry if uh, if I managed to pluck out your tweet, but if you're going to tweet it, then I'm afraid you're going to be held accountable for it. So at SW11 underscore underscore says, worst team ever in the history of Sunderland AFC, hashtag Parky Out, hashtag Donald Out. After that 2-1 win against Doncaster on the December the 29th, Speak SAFC said, good win. Does that change my stance on anything? Absolutely not. Hashtag Parky Out, hashtag Donald Out. They then had a protest ahead of the game against Lincoln on the 4th of January against Stuart Donald, the owner, against Phil Parkinson, the manager. They won 3-1, having gone 3-0 up in the first half. At SAFC Mod, buzzing we won. You never want to see your team lose, but Phil Parkinson isn't and never will be a manager I will get behind. A couple of decent performances won't change that. Hashtag SAFC, hashtag Donald out, hashtag Parky out. So, since then, it's been... Very, very good. They've taken nine points from their last nine. They've only dropped two points in their last five games. So we tweeted yesterday uh, and asked our friends Roker Report to retweet it as well, who do great stuff covering uh, covering Sunderland. We said, "Have you changed your mind on Phil Parkinson? And do you regret the uh, do you regret the, the criticism that he got at the time?" And we've plucked out. We've got loads and loads of replies. Plucked out two or three that I'm going to read out for you now. At aht underscore Mr P. Humble pie can only be truly eaten if he does the job that he was brought in to do. Get us up. We are only back where we started and when he was appointed, but the improvement is undeniable. We look much fitter. He'll be judged at the end of May. At A-Star Bathrooms, a nice little plug for them. I didn't want him to come when he came. Now I'm happy with him and looking forward to games again. I'd always been told he's a slow burner, takes games to get going. He really has shown how poor JR was as a manager. That's Jack Ross. The fact that he didn't care about fitness levels and how they have improved. And finally, at Mackham G, I don't regret any criticism of Phil Parkinson in the early stages. Look at his record. 
The turnaround has been quite remarkable though. We look solid, playing some good football and this could be due to a settled starting 11. I also believe the omission of Magidi has helped. Better balance. A reply to that was from at Macam Cafu too. His record was nothing short of a disgrace and he, and he should have been sacked. Even after this turnaround, we are only where we, where we were when, when he took over. So fair to say, Ali, Sunderland fans definitely seeing the improvement, mm. are happy about the improvement, but are in no way throwing all their weight behind Phil Parkinson. Yeah, judge him in May seems to be the, the real headline, I suppose, from all of that. Now for the feature that's possibly captured the imagination of George and I the most. We're calling it EFL Rewind and the scope is broad. We're going to be trying to find and tell the best stories from the history of the EFL. From the sublime to the ridiculous, we know that the history of these three great divisions is full of glory, drama and hilarity. So George, you're first up. Does does that does this one fit the bill there? <laughs> Yeah, I think this is one of the, certainly as an Oxford fan, it's one of the strangest uh, periods, it's the strangest period of supporting them. And it takes us back to the 9th of December 2004 and Oxford United have just parted company with Graham Ricks after a, um, a less than successful period as manager and after you know a short caretaker spell, they are set to appoint Chris Turner in what is possibly the most noughties EFL appointment of all time. Chris Turner, who'd left Sheffield Wednesday, everyone knew it was going to be him. The back page of the Oxford Mail even said the headline was it's Chris Turner some board journalists are in the press room waiting for Chris Turner to arrive and give the very very dull press conference and it's not Turner that walks in but it's an Argentinian international by the name of Ramon Diaz <laughs> who comes in with an entourage and a translator owner at the time Firoz Kassam sits down next to Diaz and says to the press shall we wait for Chris Turner Whoa. with a knowing look so this guy Ramon Diaz I mean very, very famous in Argentina. I spoke yesterday um, to Jerome Sale, who's the editor of BBC, sports editor of BBC Radio Oxford, to find out kind of his take on everything. When Diaz walked in, he said that he asked someone who Ramon Diaz was. And the reply was, he's the third most famous Argentinian behind Diego Maradona and Evita. <laughs> so <laughs> he'd come in after a seven-year stint as manager of River Plate, winning six domestic titles and a Copa Libertadores. <laughs> which is, you know, as big as it really gets in South America. But as a player as well, he had a massive, massive profile. He came through, was a contemporary and a teammate of Diego Maradona's. Um, they played together in the 1979 Youth World Cup where Diaz, not Maradona, won the Golden Boot. They played together in the 1982 World Cup for Argentina. He missed the 1986 and 1990 World Cups, apparently because of a feud with Maradona, where Maradona asked for him not to turn up. I hope he got on with Evita, at least. Yeah, yeah fingers <laughs> crossed. But, and he also had a successful playing career, both River Plate and in Italy, for Napoli, Fiorentina and Inter. What was this guy doing turning up to a struggling, what was then Division Three side, trying to fight off relegation, having managed River Plate? His arrival was, of course, in an age before social media, so nobody really knew this was coming. It took everyone by surprise. These days, you would think that people would know what was coming. And Jerome Sale, who I mentioned earlier, when he first asked Ramon Diaz for an interview ahead of his first game, was met with a request for $100,000 <laughs> because <laughs> Diaz was used to in being able to charge for, <laughs> for interviews. And he had to explain this is the BBC and that's not really what happens here. 
He brought in four players, Juan Pablo Raponi from Olympia in, in Argentina, Matteo Corbo, who had previously played for Barnsley, but was also uh, a graduate from, uh, f- from a South American academy, Lucas Colmanelli, who had come through at River Plate, and uh, Diaz's son, Emiliano Diaz, nice. who still tops every single list for the worst ever Oxford player. He was just not a footballer at all. Matteo Corbo was certainly the best player who came in. He played 13 games for Oxford and picked up nine yellow cards and one red card. He was the hardest man I've ever seen play, play, play for the yellows. And Diaz came in and he played. He had 25 games in charge of the club, got 10 wins and drew seven games. He was a massive, massive success on the pitch, certainly better than, uh, than, than his predecessor, Graham Ricks. His assistant, Horacio Rodriguez, was the one who could speak English. Uh, also, another weird twist to this that Jerome told me was that Ramon Diaz's translator was Italian. So they, didn't yeah. even, they couldn't even find a Spanish translator. So he would have to speak, in his, in his, not even in his mother tongue, in order con- to conduct interviews. It all ended fairly sadly um, with Ramon Diaz promised, I, I think, a fair chunk of money, allegedly, to take over the next season. That salary was then uh, drawn back upon. I think people involved uh, tried to buy the club off Firas Kassam. It all ended up with Ramon Diaz and his assistant Horacio Rodriguez being locked out of the stadium when they oh. tried to come back, um, having been so successful. But my favourite thing about this is it's often fun to look back at previous EFL 11s lineups because they're littered full of forgotten names. Oxford lost 2 1 at home to Grimsby in February 2005. And the starting lineup was Chris Tardiff, uh, Dave Mackay. Matt Robinson, Matteo Corbo, John Ashton, Barry Quinn, Lucas Colmanelli, Juan Pablo Raponi, Chris Hackett, Steve Basham and Tommy Mooney. Nice. That is a team I can get behind. That is an era that I absolutely loved. And it's a, you know, it's a period that we'll always remember fondly and, and hopefully we'll see Ramon Diaz back. In, uh, he, he's managed Paraguay since. It's absolutely bizarre. That is absolutely bizarre. Uh, Chris Turner, by the way, went to Stockport instead. Seven wins in 51 games there. Uh, and and since then, only a, a short spell with Hartlepool United as well. So, you know, even even Ramon Diaz for half a season was probably worth it. Well, it's up to me next week to find something to rival that, potentially better it. Who knows? But that's the first EFL Rewind. That's all from the Going Up, Going Down podcast. We hope you've enjoyed episode one. We're looking to bring you similar themes, similar features each week. But we'd also love to hear what you've enjoyed, what you've found interesting from this first episode as we look to create an interesting EFL show for the second half of the week. It's been brought to you by The Athletic. Now, The Athletic is the place to be for all the best football writing, whether it's the website or the app, slick as it is, but also a number of podcasts now released, at some club-specific, some of them enjoying the wider parts of football. The Zonal Marking podcast is my favourite outside of this one, personally. Who hosts that? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a new guy. You wouldn't know him. Uh, that's a, one of my favourites. There's so much to enjoy. The podcasts are all free and available on all platforms. But we'd also implore anyone who doesn't subscribe to the Athletic app to give it a try today. You can get 40% off the price of your annual, annual subscription if you sign up to the Athletic today using the promo code EFLPOD. It's all one word. So EFLPOD. 40% off. We hope you'll join us again next week and we hope to hear from you on social media. So do get in touch and thanks for listening.